The first quarter of the book of Acts, the first seven chapters, record Jesus or the, uh, the mission of the apostles in Jerusalem. Jesus' continuing work through his spirit and through his apostles in Jerusalem. It's an impressive mission, very impressive. At Pentecost, the spirit comes, the apostles speak in tongues, people from every tribe and tongue under heaven are there to hear the gospel. 3,000 people are baptized in one single day. They're brought together around the table, breaking bread together. They come under the apostles' teaching. It's a great success. But almost immediately, war breaks out. Almost immediately, there is opposition to the apostles. They don't have any time to rest and relax and enjoy the success of Pentecost. Within days, they're at war. There are arrests, imprisonments, court hearings, warnings, vicious beatings, and before it's all over, a martyrdom. They heal, they perform signs and wonders, they preach the gospel of the kingdom, and at the same time, in the same ministry in Jerusalem, they meet opposition at every, at every point. This opposition comes in three ways. We ended the passage here with Peter and John being arrested. They're going to be taken before the Sanhedrin, and they're going to have a hearing before the Sanhedrin, and then they're going to be let go with a warning. When they're let go with a warning, they'll go straight back to preaching Jesus to all the people in Jerusalem. They don't stop. And so they're arrested again and imprisoned again and stand before the Sanhedrin again. This time they're warned and the warning is backed up with a flogging. And then with Stephen, they keep preaching. And with Stephen, they skip all the procedural niceties. There isn't any arrest. There isn't any hearing, no court procedures, just a mob gathers together against Stephen, carries him outside the city, and stones him to death. Arrest, imprisonment, warning. Arrest, imprisonment, flogging. Arrest, no arrest, no imprisonment. Death, martyrdom, a murder. That's the mission to Jerusalem. And then everybody leaves. That's the end of the mission to Jerusalem as far as Acts is concerned. There are a few scenes that take place in Jerusalem after this, but mostly it's over. Everybody scatters. The apostles stay in Jerusalem, but the story follows all the people who are leaving Jerusalem. We might call the mission to Jerusalem the battle of Jerusalem, the war over Jerusalem. The first phases of the battle that are recounted in chapters 3 to 5 of Acts are battles that center on the temple. Chapter 2 ends with this notice that the Lord, uh, the, the, people, the disciples are in the temple. They're worshiping and they're praising God with one mind in the temple in verse 46 of chapter 2. And chapter 5 on, ends on basically the same note. They're back in the temple. They're worshiping together every day in the temple and from house to house. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And within those chapters, between chapters 3 and 5, they're framed by references to the temple. And within those chapters, there are 13 references to the temple. It's a battle in the temple. That's where the apostles have decided to preach and set up shop. 
That's where this healing takes place in chapter 3, right outside the temple gate, the gate that's called beautiful. This takes a little of what might be called chutzpah. After all, it's only been a few months since Jesus charged into the temple on Palm Sunday after his triumphant entry into the city. He goes directly into the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers. He interrupts the temple procedures. He condemns the temple as a den of robbers. And it's that incident that's the last straw for the Jewish leaders. Jesus sets up shop in the temple. He begins to heal in the temple. He teaches in the temple. He engages in debates with all the different groups of Jews in the temple. And every time he he embarrasses his opponents. And the Jews can't take anymore. And they decide somebody who acts like the temple belongs to him, as Jesus does, has to be eliminated. This is a pollution in Israel, and we need to get rid of him. Jesus dies, the catalyst, the final catalyst for Jesus' crucifixion, is his action in the temple. And now, a couple months later, his disciples are right back doing the same thing. They're healing in the temple. They're worshiping in the temple. They're preaching in the temple about the Jesus who was expelled from the temple and killed because of what he did in the temple. You can imagine what the priests are thinking. What does it take to get rid of this guy? We killed him. And he keeps haunting us. His name keeps coming up. It's almost as if he didn't stay dead. And he's haunting the temple. They're going to have to get rid of the apostles too. Because the apostles are doing all the things in the temple that Jesus did. They've made it their base of operations. That's where they're teaching. That's where they're preaching Jesus. That's where they're performing signs and wonders and healings. And the temple authorities have to put it to an end. After chapter 7, the temple drops out of the picture in Acts. We don't have any references to the temple for 14 chapters. But the battle in the temple is not over. Late in Acts, Paul sets his face to Jerusalem as Jesus had done. And Paul follows Jesus' footsteps back to Jerusalem as Jesus had done. And he goes into the same place that Jesus went into, which is the temple. And when he goes into the temple, he's acting out a ritual for purification. But he's in the temple. He's arrested in the temple, and that's the beginning of Paul's incarceration, which takes up the remainder of Acts. That's the last glimpse we get at the temple. And it's a telling glimpse of the future of the temple. Paul is dragged out, and there's such a riot that they close the doors of the temple. The last scene we see of the temple is a temple with closed doors and Christians excluded. When the saints are cast out of the temple, the glory departs. The temple is left Ichabod. The glory has departed. The name of Israel that's given to one of the grandsons of Eli the priest in the early chapters of Samuel because the glory had departed from the tabernacle at Shiloh. This temple is left Ichabod. And soon, soon enough, that temple is going to be shut Forever, not just to Christians. The doors are not even going to be, they're not going to be shut. They're going to be destroyed. There won't be any doors. You drive out the glory from the temple, and the temple is doomed. 
Jesus wins the battle of the temple. But it's not just a battle in the temple. It's a battle about the temple. About what the temple does and does not provide. And how the apostles are giving to the people of Jerusalem everything that the temple is supposed to give to the people of Jerusalem. They become the temple, as we heard in our epistle reading this morning. Paul is a wise master craftsman who's building a sanctuary, and the sanctuary is made of people. You are the temple of the living God, Paul says. That temple is the place where, they can, where the Jews can find what they used to find in the temple of stone. In the first ten verses of chapter 3, the word temple is used six times. It's used in almost every phrase. We have this repetitive. It's hard to read because there's so many references to the temple. The man is sitting outside the temple. That's a beautiful gate in the temple. Peter and John are going into the temple. As they're going into the temple, the man sees them going into the temple. And so he calls to them because he's hoping to get some alms. And then after he's healed, he leaps into the temple. And they go into worship in the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. The temple is all over this incident. It's the background. It's the setting. But also Luke repeats the word temple so often that we know that something's at, something's at stake here. John, uh, Luke is highlighting the temple for some reason. The only, the only part of this incident where the temple is not mentioned is in verses 5 through 7. That's the place where Peter and John address the lame man, raise him up, and heal him. We've got this temple surrounding, but the temple's doing nothing for this lame man, but Peter and John do. And the way, Luke, uh, the way Luke writes this little incident sets up this contrast between the temple and the apostles. It's a multi-layered contrast, a multi-layered conflict between the old temple and the new. It's possible that the Jews have deliberately excluded the lame man. Some Jews in the first century were applied the rules concerning sacrificial animals and priests to anyone entering the temple. If you wanted to serve at the altar as a priest, you had to be physically perfect. You couldn't have any physical defects. If you wanted to offer an animal, the animal had to be physically perfect. And some Jews began applying those rules uh, to people who were trying to enter the temple. The Bible doesn't do that. Leviticus doesn't do that. But the Jews had developed this tradition that blind people and lame people and anybody with any kind of physical malady could come as far as the gate of the temple, but he couldn't come in. The Jews exclude the lame man from the temple. Peter and John heal him and then lead him into the temple, leaping into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. The man is there begging alms. The word for alms is derived from the Greek word for mercy. He's begging for coined compassion. He's looking for mercy in the form of money. And the situation is an ironic one. He's sitting at the gate called Beautiful. I don't think anybody quite knows what that gate is. But we can imagine it was a richly adorned gate of the temple. The gates of the temple were adorned with precious metals, silver and gold sometimes with gems, intricate carvings on the gates of the temple. That's the temple beautiful. The temple has all this wealth, and the man is reduced to begging at the gate. He's like Lazarus in the parable of Jesus. 
The temple authorities are like the rich man, very much like the rich man. The rich man is dressed like a priest in Jesus' parables. parable. The rich man is just giving crumbs to Lazarus. Lazarus has to gather the crumbs. That's the situation for this man outside the temple. The temple does nothing for him. Doesn't give him any of the gold and silver that's there. Doesn't provide for him. Doesn't support him. But Peter and John do. They have no gold or silver in contrast to the temple. But what they have, they're ready to give. I have no silver and gold, Peter says. But what I have, I give you. That is the principle of life in the church. They have the spirit in order to share the spirit. They have the word in order to proclaim the word. They have bread in order to break bread and pass it out and share bread. And we find in various places that the Jerusalem church even treated their private property that way. That private property was there to be shared. And if there was need in the church, they were willing to sell it and distribute the proceeds. If you have it, you give it. That's the principle that Peter is operating on. And the thing that he has to give is a name. What he has to give is not gold or silver, but what he has to give is the name of Jesus. And by that name, he raises the man up from his lameness and he's healed. That's part of the conflict with the temple. Our Old Testament lesson, Deuteronomy 12, talks about how the Lord is going to choose a place for his house once Israel is settled in the land. Once they have peace in the land, he's going to choose a place where he is going to set his name. That's what the temple's for. The temple is a place where the name dwells. But apparently the name is no longer with the temple, at least not a healing, saving, life-giving name. Peter has the name. Peter has the name that heals. Peter has the name that gives life. The name that used to dwell in the temple became flesh as Jesus. And the spirit of that name now dwells among the apostles. They are the true temple. And the fact that they have the name brings out the most basic contrast or conflict between the temple and the apostles. For 40 years, we learn in chapter 4, for 40 years... This man has been lame from his mother's womb. He's about 40 years old. He can't move. He's never been otherwise, and the temple has done nothing to help him. But in a momentary encounter with representatives of the true temple, a momentary encounter with apostles who actually bear the name, this man is healed, and not just heals. He becomes a new man. This isn't just a healing. This is a resurrection. He's reborn. Reborn as a man no longer lame. Reborn like one of the exiles who comes leaping out of Babylon in Isaiah 35. Coming back to the land. Leaping like David before the ark. Because the disciples who accompany him into the temple are bearers of the glory that was enthroned on the ark. This man is made new. With the, with the apostles, there is life. Because the name is with them. But there is no life 
coming from the temple. That's what the temple is supposed to be. The dwelling place of the name. And the name is supposed to, is the glory of God that radiates out and gives life and health and prosperity to Israel. It's not there anymore. The name is with the apostles. The conflict between the apostles and the temple is not just over institutional power. This is a conflict of death versus life. The life that the apostles have to give versus the death that the temple deals out. That's the point of Peter's sermon. Peter begins by identifying the source of the power that raised this man up, that gave him this new life. The source of the power is not in them. Don't look at us. It's not by our power or piety. It's the God you worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that God has come to us in Jesus, and it's in his name, the name of the risen one, that there is life and healing. But Peter no sooner mentions Jesus than he switches into accusation gear. He did this at Pentecost. A big chunk of his sermon at Pentecost is laying out the accusation, the indictment against the Jews for rejecting Jesus. And Peter goes on the attack here again. As soon as he mentions Jesus, he says, you remember Jesus. He's the one you renounced. He's the one you rejected, even when Pilate was ready to let him go. He was the one that you put to death. But notice how Peter describes him. He's the holy and righteous one. And he is the prince of life. In rejecting Jesus... The Jews have rejected the prince of life. It's worse than that. Peter adds an important detail. You disowned the holy and righteous one. What did they choose? They choose, chose a murderer. The scene before Pilate was literally a choice among the Jews. A choice between life and death. A choice between a life-giving prince, Jesus and a death-dealing murderer. It's the same choice that the Jews had way back on the plains of Moab before they entered the land. I set before you, Moses said, I set before you life and prosperity, death and disaster. Choose life. They had the same choice in Pilate's court, and they chose death and renounced the Prince of Life. No wonder the temple can't do anything. No wonder the temple is not a source of life. The leaders of the temple have chosen a murderer and renounced the prince of life. The temple can't be life-giving as long as they're enslaved to the death that they chose when they renounced Jesus and chose Barabbas instead. And Peter says they're in huge danger on account of that. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. He's the prophet that everyone is supposed to listen to. Verse 23, he says, he reminds them of the warning back in Deuteronomy. Every soul that doesn't listen to this prophet will be utterly destroyed. That's what happens to Canaanites. Canaanites are utterly destroyed. But if you're an Israelite and you don't listen to this prophet like Moses who's going to come, then you'll be treated like a Canaanite. You'll be utterly destroyed. Jesus is that prophet. 
That's the future for Israel. Because they chose death. They'll get what they want. They get death. They get disaster. But Peter tells them, addressing them as brothers, he tells them it's not over. It's not the end of the story. Repent. You did this in ignorance. Ignorance, sins of ignorance can be forgiven. Sins of ignorance can be atoned for by sacrifice. If you repent, Peter says, then your sins will be forgiven. They'll be wiped away. Sins in general, but specifically the sin that really concerns Peter in this sermon is the sin of rejecting Jesus and choosing murder. That sin, that sin will be wiped away along with all of the others. And not only that, but once the sins are wiped away, if Israel repents, when the sins are wiped away, then times of refreshing will come. What Peter calls the restoration of all things. When we hear that kind of language, we might think of the end of history when the final new creation arrives. The new heavens and the new earth in their final form. I don't, I don't think that's what Peter is talking about here. This is, the thing, this is the restoration that all the prophets have talked about. And Peter later says that the prophets were talking about these days, the days we're in. The restoration that Peter promises to the Jews who repent is a restoration of Israel. They're going to have times of refreshing. They're going to be put back together again if they repent and choose life. They have another chance. They can choose life and reject death. Peter says that Jesus rose from the dead for you. For you first, verse 26. God raised up his servant. Jesus lived for his people Israel. He died for his people Israel. He rose again to restore his people Israel. And if they receive him, repent and receive him, then that life will come to them and they'll join the lame man. Walking and leaping and praising God. They'll join a true life-giving temple. They'll be like the exiles coming back from exile, coming back from Babylon, if they repent. And once they're restored, they're like the sons of the covenant who are fulfilling the promise of Abraham, verse 26. The promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Israel. I think that's what Acts is about. Acts is certainly about the rejection of the leadership and the temple leadership of Israel, but it's also about the restoration of Israel. That is actually happening as thousands, thousands of Jews repent and receive the Prince of Life. Not every single Israelite is restored, but I think Paul is talking about his own time, the first century, when he says, all Israel shall be saved. Israel is saved, and then Israel, the restored Israel, now accompanied by Gentiles, becomes the people that carries out the Abrahamic mission to bless all the families of the earth. I don't think the mission in Jerusalem is a failure. I don't think the mission to the Jews is a failure. If you had a ministry consultant come in and kind of look over the, these few chapters of Acts and say, you know, this isn't a real successful mission. Yeah, yeah, lots of converts, lots of signs and wonders, but you got this, this other side of the ledger. You keep, you know, arousing opposition. 
people don't really like you. A lot of people don't like you. You get arrested all the time. You get tried. You get flogged. You get killed. Let's try to reduce the negative side of the ledger so that the positive side of the ledger can, can, be, uh, can stand out. A mission to Jerusalem might look like a failure. We know from chapter 4, verse 4, that even that day, the day when they're arrested and imprisoned for the first time, that's not a failure. Because 5,000 people believe after hearing Peter talk. 5,000. More than Pentecost. This is not a failed mission to Jerusalem. But we might think, this is success. I'm not sure I like it. If success means arrest, imprisonment, and flogging, arrest, imprisonment, warning, you know, no arrest, martyrdom. If that's the pattern of a successful mission, we'd rather find some other way to go about it. There is no other way to go about it. There is no other way to carry out the mission of the Prince of Life than to arouse the opposition of the forces of death. You can't do it. We can't do it any more than the apostles could. Life wins. Jesus wins. He will reign until all his enemies are placed beneath his feet and the last enemy will be death. He will reign until death itself is defeated. But in the meantime, our mission, proclaiming the Prince of Life, will always rouse the opposition of the forces of death. Death will not go down without a fight. And our successful mission, if we're successful as a church in carrying out our mission, both ledgers will be filled. Lots of signs and wonders, lots of converts, lots of opposition. Those are two sides of the same coin. Because when you serve and proclaim the Prince of Life, death will fight back. Death will not take defeat without a battle. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Life. We thank you that you've exalted him to your right hand and that he will reign until every enemy is placed beneath his feet. We pray that you would give us strength to carry out the mission of the Prince of Life, no matter what opposition might arise. Prepare us, Lord, for the opposition of the forces of death and make us courageous and faithful as the apostles were in the face of it. So we can proclaim, so as we proclaim, the, re, the, the life and the glory of the rejected but enthroned Prince of Life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.